50 years, Wednesday mornings have meant gathering with a group of ladies that represent all phases of life and all stages of spiritual development. And I remain just deeply grateful to all the ladies who've poured into this ministry. So, the book of Hebrews is not for the theologically faint of heart. The author doesn't warm up his audience with introductory verses of greetings and personable references. Beginning with the opening verses of chapter one, the author plunges its readers, his readers into the deep truths of Christology, the study of Christ. Within a matter of words, it becomes clear that the writer has something for us to consider. To consider means to study, to contemplate, to deliberate, to apply one's mind to something in order to increase his or her understanding or knowledge, or, and I think it's and, to reach a decision about it. So to apply one's mind in order to gain knowledge or understanding or reach a decision. Considering Christ ends in action with either the initial placing of faith or a renewal of abiding faith or a withholding of faith. When it comes to placing faith, faith in the essence of things unseen and the substance of things hoped for, when it comes to that, intellectual wrestling should be expected. The study of Hebrews will cause at least some level of cognitive dissonance. You can count on it. You should expect it. Try to embrace it. Maybe even revel in it. Wrestling with the Word of God is part of the natural process of deepening our faith. Now, when I wrestle, and I do mean just intellectually, my desire is to pin down a concept, totally own it, own it mentally. My human approach is to mull over the concept until I mentally position myself with a firm enough grasp to claim the victory of comprehension. Yet, with the most mind-bending of topics and even the most basic teachings, I find that my mental grasp rarely allows for total comprehension and never exhibits total application. As irritating as it is to admit, total comprehension escapes me. Pinning it down and finishing it off eludes me because the thinking is beyond me. That is truly frustrating from a human pride perspective, and yet so indicative of who I am, who we all are, at limited humans serving a triune God who lacks even one single limitation. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. But make no mistake, I am not saying to just lie on the mat and refuse to engage in the mental wrestling match. As believers, we are commanded to be able to give a reason for our hope, for what we believe. 
Our answer should be more than a script of, of words that are memorized by rote. After a period of consideration, we should be able to engage in conversations that demonstrate sincere contemplation. Ladies, the conversations don't have to demonstrate complete comprehension. Instead of mastery in the form of a mental pin, the victory remains in God's faithfulness to His Word, His faithfulness to His promises, His faithfulness in giving us His final Word, which is Christ, bringing the offer of redemption, and His faithfulness in Christ's eternal place as advocate on the throne on each believer's behalf, our advocate. So think back with me to last year's study of Deuteronomy. If you'll remember, haha, the book repeatedly emphasized the practice of reminding ourselves and remembering. So as we consider Christ, infinite, eternal, transcendent, incomprehensible Christ, let's simultaneously remind ourselves of tangible examples of his goodness, faithfulness, holiness, and truthfulness. In doing so, I think we'll solidify God's testimony of mercy, grace, and love poured out on our lives through the gospel. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself in ways that we can absorb. And also thank you for being the God who is triune and beyond us. Thank you for reminding us that, that you are the person we place our faith in, and you are beyond us. Thank you for mercifully loving us and graciously offering us a relationship with you through Christ's finished work on the cross. We dedicate this time of study, Lord, to your will, and we trust your Holy Spirit to teach us. Amen. So, we're finally to chapter one. You thought I'd never get there. I was just giving myself and you all uh, permission to wrestle and not totally grasp. So, chapter one. Depending on the translation in your lap, the heading for the chapter might read, God's final word, colon, God's son, or God has spoken by his son, or the supremacy of God's son. Last week, we ended in verse 4, which reads, Christ is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Today's passage is not a study of who angels are. Instead, it's a study of who Christ is. As we study Christ's essence, his nature, and his identity, our view of angels will develop in light of who God declares Christ to be. While today isn't going to be a study of angels, we still must proceed with a foundation of historical context. So I'll share something John, uh, John MacArthur explained the significance of angels to this original audience with these words. The Old Covenant was mediated to men by angels. Deuteronomy 33, Acts 7, Galatians 3. 
the Jewish people revered and esteemed angels higher than any other created being. And if angels were the mediators of the Old Covenant, then the writer must prove that Jesus is better than the angels. The recipients of this sermon letter were second-generation believers who'd been converted to faith in Christ by eyewitness accounts of Christ's humanity and eyewitness accounts of his deity. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 3. Yet, after even just one small generation gap, these believers were considering a return to the faith forms that had been practiced for centuries by their forefathers. Warren Wearsby writes, Hebrews was written to Christians at a time when the ages were colliding and everything in society seemed to be shaken. Sounds familiar. They were tempted to go back to the Jewish religion. The temple was still standing when this book was written, and all the priestly ceremonies were still being carried on daily. So holding firm to the new covenant was costly and returning to the comfort of a well-rehearsed sacrificial system seemed reasonable. But the writer of Hebrews wisely addresses these believers with familiar concepts using familiar words, God's words. He opens their hearts and eyes by quoting seven different passages from their faith foundation. God's word was trusted as a reliable source of authority and truth. And the author employs God's words to define Christ. The writer begins in verse 5 by presenting a name God has given to Christ, or to put it another way, as verse 4 did, a name Christ inherited from God. The importance of names was deeply, and the giving of names was deeply familiar to this audience. In Jewish culture of the day, names were given with a purpose, usually honoring a relative and with a hope for future behavior. Think about that. Their hope was there was an expectation for the name bearer to emulate the character of the namesake. I hadn't really thought about it until this moment, but over the years I have joked over and over that perhaps I shouldn't have given one of my sons my father's name as a middle name because I see so much of them that coming through. So, but anyway, there was an expectation, good ways and bad ways, sorry dad. Um, there was an expectation for the name bearer to emulate the character of the namesake. Store that away and think about it later. So verse five reads, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The superior name Christ has inherited, the name no angel can claim, is Son of God. God is the Father, Christ is the Son. Dr. Warren Wearsby explains the author's reference to 2 Samuel. I'm sure you noted that there was a, a, a psalm reference and a reference to 2 Samuel, by writing, the immediate application in David's experience in 2 Samuel was to his son Solomon, whom God would love and discipline as a son. But the ultimate application is to Jesus Christ, the one greater than Solomon. If you looked in Matthew 12, 42, and Luke 
11.31, you would find Christ referring to himself as the one greater than Solomon. So the moniker, my son, demonstrates the intimate and filial relationship that exists eternally between these two members of the Trinity. This father-son relationship lays the foundation for Christ's role as king. He can't be an heir without being a son. And it guarantees the position of his followers as co-heirs with Christ's rightful inheritance. We tend to think of and limit the father-son relationship by our human experience in terms of human existence. But there's much more expressed in the name Son of God. Charles Ryrie, in his book, Basic Theology, has this to say regarding the name Son of God. Our Lord used this designation of himself, John 10, 36, and he acknowledged its truthfulness when it was used by others of him in Matthew 26. But what does it mean? Though the phrase son of can mean offspring of, it also carries the meaning of the order of. Of the order of. The designation son of God, when used of our Lord, means of the order of God and is a strong and clear claim to full deity. In Jewish usage, the term son of so-and-so did not generally imply any subordination, but rather equality and identity of nature. That's a lot to absorb in that quote. You want me to say it again? I will. I gave, I gave permission to the leaders yesterday to say one more time. So, so I'll start with what does it mean? Son of can mean offspring, but also of the order of. The designation son of God when used of our Lord means of the order of God and is a strong and clear claim to his deity, full deity. In Jewish usage, the term son of so-and-so did not generally imply subordination but rather equality and identity of nature. Therefore, for Christ to say, I am the Son of God, was understood by his contemporaries as identifying himself as God, equal with the Father in an unqualified sense. Son of God is meant to convey or communicate the full deity of Christ. So reread verse 5 with me. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the term begotten has caused much confusion, discussion, division, and false doctrine. Therefore, I'm leaning heavily on the fruits of career theologians. If you've noted, I am not one of those. Their knowledge, understanding, and wisdom have helped me wrestle wrestle with my time and space inclinations in order to view the word begotten from its eternal perspective. The Moody Handbook of Theology, which I have to tell you is an extremely re helpful resource, I find it to handle the deep truths with depth, not candy-coating it, but in words and phrases and illustrations I can grasp at some level. 
it says, it is with reference to the humanity of Christ that the term begotten is used. In reference to the humanity of Christ. It could never be used with reference to his deity. Begotten does not relate to Jesus being or becoming the Son of God. Jesus has been the Son of God from eternity. Thus, Psalm 2-7 and Acts 13-33 emphasize that begotten refers to the public declaration of the sonship of Christ, but not the origination of the sonship. With the use of the term begotten, the writer of Hebrews confirms that Christ is fully God and fully man. John Piper writes, begotten means unique, the only one of its kind, the only example of its category. Only begotten is used to mark out Jesus uniquely above all earthly and heavenly beings. Christ is fully God in his sonship and as son of God equal with the Father in an unqualified sense, and he's fully man in his begotten humanity. Christ's deity, the reason the author starts with Christ's deity is it proves his supremacy to angels. He is eternally born forth, another term that helps us understand begotten. Eternally born forth, divinity embodied in human form. Now there is really no illustration to capture this concept perfectly, but I'll share one that's been helpful to me. So over a decade ago, I was sitting cross-legged on the floor in a preschool classroom back in this very building. I know what direction I was facing. And I can still see the face of the person succinctly explaining the simultaneous deity and humanity of Christ. So as the teacher, I asked a question, and two children blurted out their answers, as preschoolers tend to do. One said Jesus, and one said God. And I didn't see the need to settle the difference, and I continued on with the lesson. But a couple of young classmates took offense at my insensitivity to theological accuracy. They did. And an argument along these lines ensued. God and Jesus aren't the same person. Well, Jesus is God, but God isn't Jesus. Hmm. My effort to clear up any confusion was pitiful. <laughs> In an attempt to steer clear of heavy-duty words like kenosis, hypostatic union, and even begotten, <clears throat> I found myself stumbling and bumbling with equally abstract words like essence, nature, and substance. Then a five-year-old interrupted me. And the child said, well, I think it's kind of like this piece of paper. The child held up, a grabbed a piece of construction paper that was meant for an art project and picked it up and waved it around. You know construction paper, can you almost feel it in your hands? The older ones of us can really feel it because before paper got this smooth, you could almost see the fibers of it, remember? And the color wasn't as solid as this piece has because the fibers were all there 
all intermingled. But the five-year-old is waving this piece of paper and said, I think of it, like, it's kind of like this piece of paper. Both sides are made up of the same stuff, the same paper. God and Jesus are made of the exact same material. This is a five-year-old talking. I mean, you can't split the paper. The two sides make up one piece. Then he turned to his classmate and said, you look at one side of the paper and see Jesus as a man, but one side of the paper can't be there without the other side. They can't be separated. Son of God, begotten of the Father, fully God, fully man. Now to verse 6. Since we've wrapped our mind around that, done with that, I can see my mother going like this. On to the next job. Now to verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This verse introduces another name for Christ, the firstborn. Moody Handbook of Theology says, in Old Testament culture, the predominant emphasis was on the status of the oldest son. He enjoyed the double portion of the inheritance, privileges over other family members, preferential treatment, and the respect of others. Figuratively, the word denotes prior priority or supremacy, and it is so used of Christ. In Colossians 1.18, which is in our lesson today, Christ is ref referred to as the firstborn, and the meaning is clear. As firstborn, Christ is the head of the church and preeminent in everything. In Hebrews 1.6, the supremacy of Christ as the firstborn is seen in that angels worship him. Only God is worshiped. The firstborn title is one of rank and honor, for the firstborn receives the inheritance and the special blessing. And in this case, the blessing here is worship. He's receiving worship. So read verse 6 with me again. It begins, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. I think that's kind of a strange thing to say. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. But scholars of syntax and grammar help us understand that this verse refers to the second coming of Christ. Their evidence is long and hard, and it includes a dissection of word placement, modifiers, and subjective mood. But if you boil it all down, the again stands for the second coming. This is the again when God brings the firstborn into the world again. And verse 6 is saying, at his second coming, let all God's angels worship him. That simple sentence holds a deep truth. John Piper writes, this is the point of verse 6. I love it when someone boils it down. This is the point. Since Jesus is the Son of God, which we've just gone through, fully God, fully man, he is not an angel but is so superior to angels that all angels worship him. Jesus has supremacy over angels because he is the firstborn, the one worthy of receiving their worship. Verse 7. 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Look at the subject and verb in that verse. I love subjects. I love grammar. According to Psalm 104.4, he, the Father, makes his angels like winds and his ministers as a flame of fire. The angels' appearance may change according to God's wishes for them. He makes. Then look at the possessive pronouns. His angels, his ministers. Angels belong under God's authority as created beings. Therefore, angels are also under the authority of the exact representation of the Father's deity on full display in Christ. Angels are under the authority of that exact representation of the Father's deity on full display in Christ, fully God in his full humanity. Warren Wearsby points out that the Hebrew and Greek words for spirit are also translated wind. Angels are created spirits. They have no bodies, though they can assume human forms when ministering on earth, when God makes them do that. Angels sometimes even served our Lord when he was on earth. Think back to Christ's temptation in the, del in the, well, in the desert, um, Matthew 4, or in Luke 4. 22 on the Mount of Olives when Christ is praying. The angels served him, they continue to serve him, and they serve us now. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Now, these may be my favorite quotation. This is my favorite quotation used to, describe, to declare Christ's superiority in this chapter. This is my favorite in this chapter. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Look at all that royal vocabulary. Throne, scepter, kingdom, anointed. Vocabulary which was personal personally meaningful to the writer's audience. Now, our concept of royalty, on the other hand, has been framed by childhood exposure to fairy tales and adult exposure to supermarket magazines, both of which are far removed from reality. But the author's use of kingship language was second nature to the Hebrew audience. Their lives had been formed by generations of imperfect human rulers. This passage describes an eternal throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A throne occupied by the God-anointed monarch who loves righteousness, hates wickedness, and permeates his kingdom with joy. He's anointed with the oil of joy. He permeates his kingdom with joy. Christ is the perfect fulfillment of kingship. I want to read another translation of verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. God, your God. He's speaking to God and of God having a God fully 
God fully man. Look at that positional vocabulary. Above your companions, beyond your companions. That's the verbiage of supremacy. This enthronement is at the right hand of God. As John Piper says, no angel sits at God's right hand as the Son of God anointed in power. The final phrase I want to highlight in, in this passage is found in verse 8. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Or, in another version, righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, the Hebrew believers would have been well acquainted with the image of a scepter in a king's hand. And perhaps, for those of us who have never lived under a monarchy, though, the image might be lost on us. So I brought along a little visual aid. Any self-respecting daughter of a music and drama person should be able to walk to their basement, into the toy room, into the now very quiet toy room, and the dress-up bin that hasn't been used for a number of years and locate the scepter. <clears throat> it took less than 20 seconds for me to find the scepter. It's not a scepter of righteousness in our household, <laughs> but, <clears throat> but there it is. The, so I thought that I'd illustrate it a little bit more. Um, and the book of Esther is just one of my favorites. If, if you're reading through uh, the Bible, as some of the people in our body are and I have failed to completely do, you, I looked back and found, oh, I would have read Esther two months ago. So those of you who did, it's fresher on your mind than those of you who may have never read it. Um, but I'm going to give a bare-bones summary that really vividly illustrates the power of a monarch's scepter. And then I'm going to encourage you all to treat yourselves to the entire account because it is an unbelievable account of God's hand at work in the lives of those willing to obey him, the book of Esther. It's riveting. It was really hard for me to leave out some of the details because they're so great, but I'm just going to give the summary. I do want to set the historical setting. Esther 1.1 says, quote, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And, and, and to clarify, it's the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to the Upper Nile region, in case you were thinking of another Xerxes. <clears throat> But I love that about the Bible. It, it identifies this person. This isn't a made-up story. This happened to the Xerxes, who was ruling over 127 provinces from India to the Upper Nile. So during a feast, this King Xerxes asks for his queen, Queen Vashti, to make a royal appearance. And she refused. And therefore, she was banished from her role as queen. And now, as a result, every king needs a queen. So King Xerxes needed a new queen. And the Bible records that there was a woman named Esther who was lovely in form and features. She had been orphaned and raised by her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai sent Esther to be considered as one of the candidates to become the new queen. And when it was Esther's turn to present herself before the king, the king was immediately taken by her and made Esther his queen. There are lots of good details behind that, but you have to read them yourself. 
Mordecai had instructed Esther to keep her family background and nationality a secret. And Esther had followed Mordecai's instructions, just as she had done when he was bringing her up. Not long after Esther became queen, the king appointed a new official named Haman. He was well regarded by the king, so much so that the king commanded that every person under Haman's authority was to kneel in his presence. Mordecai, however, refused to kneel and pay homage to Haman. So in order to get even with Mordecai, Haman tricked the king into believing that all the Jewish people living in his kingdom were a threat to his reign. Haman got permission to seal a new decree to have all the Jews killed on the 13th day of the 12th month, 12th month, which was less than a year away. Now remember, neither Haman nor the king knew that Esther was a Jewish woman. When Mordecai heard the horrific news, he wept bitterly. Then he sent word to Esther to ask her to speak to the king about the law and to plead for her people's safety. Well, Esther sent word back to Mordecai to remind him of one small problem with that plan. Quote, For any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, he has but one law, that he or she be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the royal scepter to him or her and spare his or her life. But it's been 30 days since I was called to the king. So Mordecai took a turn reminding Esther. I mean, if they had just been able to text, this would have gone a lot faster. But they're running messengers ragged back and forth between. So Mordecai takes a turn reminding, which I love this reminding back and forth. It's the Deuteronomy all over again. She's saying one thing, he's reminding her of another truth, back and forth. Mordecai takes a turn and reminds Esther that she wasn't safe and that perhaps she had been given the position of queen for such a time as this. Perhaps she was to provide deliverance for her people. When Esther received his message, she, was, she sent a request to Mordecai, asking him and all the Jews in the area to fast for three days before she presented herself without an invitation to the king. After three days, Esther put on her best royal robes and stood in the king's inner court. The Bible says that King Xerxes was seated on his throne, and when he saw her, he was pleased, and he held out his scepter. And she approached the throne, and touched the tip of the scepter. King Xerxes offered life to Esther by extending his scepter. She received his offer of life by humbly approaching the throne and touching the scepter. Christ rules his, from his throne with a scepter of righteousness. He offers life to the inhabitants of his creation through the extension of his righteousness scepter. All we must do to receive redemption from our sinful state is humbly accept his righteousness. That is the eternal power of a fully divine and fully human king. He alone can offer life. He alone can redeem us from our fallen position of being dead in our trespasses and sins. What an eternally powerful king we worship. Verses 10 and 12 through 12. And you, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, 
but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This quote from Psalm 102 refers to God as the creator, which applies equally to the Son, for the Son is God. Christ, as fully God, is therefore fully creator, while angels are creatures created by the Creator. John MacArthur writes, The angels did not found the earth, for they too are part of creation. Jesus Christ is the Creator, and one day He will do away with the old creation and bring in a new creation. Everything around us changes, but He will never change. Verses 11 through 13, as we look back at that, it says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Dr. Wearsby says, The, the goal of the book of Hebrews is to have us build our lives on the permanence of the eternal and not on the instability of the temporal. I'm going to say that again. The goal of the book of Hebrews is to have us build our lives on the permanence of the eternal and not on the instability of the temporal. Now we come to verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The author wraps up his first round of persuasive facts about Jesus Christ by tying verse 13 back to verse 3. The Son is seated at the right hand of God the Father, seated in the place of honor. Verses 13 and 14 draw a set of vivid contrasts between Christ and the ministering angels. Here are some differences that I gleaned from a sermon by John Piper. Jesus is sitting as king, Angels are sent by the king as servants. Jesus is sitting as king. The king sends the angels as servants. There's only one king, but there are many servant angels. Christ is the king over, positionally, over the church, beyond and above all of his companions. Angels do his bidding for the church. Christ is over. Angels do, his, do Christ's bidding for the church. Angels serve those of us who will inherit salvation so that believers will persevere in faith. And as angels serve those who will inherit salvation, the enemies of God are made a footstool for, his, for Christ's feet. There is the final image of this passage, and that image makes me smile. Can you tell how concrete a person I am? Christ is seated on his eternal throne, waiting until God the Father pulls up a footstool fashioned out of Christ's enemies. So these 10 verses contain the truths that Christ is the Son of God and he's superior to angels in his deity, that Christ is the firstborn who receives worship from angels. Christ is served by angels. Christ is enthroned as eternal king. Christ is the creator. Angels are creatures created by the creator. Christ is the sovereign. Angels 
are the servants. So, where does that leave us? We study, contemplate, deliberate, and then repeat. We wrestle, grasp, and release, only to seek fuller comprehension in the future. With each round of contemplation, our understanding increases regarding who humans are without Christ, who believers are in Christ, and who believers are becoming as a result of Christ's sanctifying work. Considering Christ ends in action with either the initial placing of faith, the renewal of abiding faith, or a withholding of faith. We'll close by hearing and receiving some words of encouragement written by Peter. And let's remind ourselves that Peter certainly wrestled with the words of God, even as they were spoken right in front of him by Christ. Peter displayed, displayed white-hot faith and cowardly times of denial and doubt. And, as we read in last week's lesson, there were times he didn't even know what he was saying. That same Peter encourages fellow believers with these words from 2 Peter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That hope, Jesus Christ. Verse 22 of chapter 3 says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Amen.